Good morning, church. Now turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2 this morning. This is, in many ways, our final Advent service. As this evening, we will have a special service for Christmas Eve, but this is our final Lord's Day worship service before we celebrate Christmas. We're continuing to study the Gospel of Luke this Advent season. And this morning we're actually going to be in a number of passages, but we will start in Luke. One of the difficult things of Advent is it is right to have the impulse to try to really encapsulate the entirety of the Old Testament in these weeks leading up to Christmas, because that is what the Old Testament is. That's what it was. That's what the Old Covenant was. That's what the children of Israel were. That's who they were. They were all pointing to, leading up to Jesus, leading up to the Incarnation. And so this is the impulse that we have, and so we've looked back at prophecy. We've looked back at the promise of a coming king. This morning, as we look at Luke chapter 2, we're going to see what we just sang about, which is a little town of Bethlehem, and how prominent this little town factors in to the birth of Christ, the incarnation, and ultimately God with us. So look now with me at Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now it happened that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus for a census to be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Crinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was going to be registered for the census, each to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was betrothed to him and was with child. Now it happened that while they were there, the days were fulfilled for her to give birth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we think about the birth of your son. We think about him being laid in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes. We think about the shepherds coming to visit, the magi coming to pay tribute and worship. We think about these things, and we are right to think about these things. This morning, Lord, we pray that your word will speak to us, that your spirit will illuminate your scripture as brightly shining as the star over Bethlehem that morning so that we will be transformed in ways that don't just allow us to celebrate better today and tomorrow, but allow us to worship better today, tomorrow, and for the rest of our lives. We ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. So the city of David. We see in uh, verse 4 of chapter 2 of Luke that Joseph went from Galilee from the city of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Bethlehem has become a place that we are familiar with because of its prominence in this text and other texts of the birth narrative of Jesus. 
You can hardly drive through a state without seeing a Bethlehem. You can hardly think about the story of Scripture without Bethlehem being one of those places of prominence. If you take a tour of the Holy Land, then Bethlehem will surely be on that itinerary. But Bethlehem was nothing special. And today, taking away all of the landmarks and all of the tourism that has gone in, it is really nothing remarkable. It's not Jerusalem. It's not so many of the other cities that you find in the, in, in the region of Israel and of Judah. It was small. We are right when we sing the song we just sang and call it Little Town of Bethlehem. In fact, in, in, in uh, Micah's prophecy about Bethlehem, he has to designate which Bethlehem Christ will be born in because there was multiple Bethlehems. And so it is true to say that it was an unremarkable place. But God does remarkable things in unremarkable places. And as much as we love where we are in southern New Hampshire, we ought to say, thank you, God, that you do remarkable things in unremarkable places. Because in the grand scheme of things in this wide world, we're in a relatively unremarkable place, which is the case for so many Christians all around the world but this is precisely how God works and precisely where God works. So the first thing that we want to see when we look at our text this morning is the city of David. This is the city of David, and that's why Bethlehem is special. Bethlehem is not special because of its amenities. Bethlehem is not special because of its economy. Bethlehem is not special because there is anything particularly notable about the house of bread, as it literally could be rendered, Bethlehem. Bethlehem is special because it is the city of David, and we see that in verse 4. But will you now turn with me, and we don't do this often, but this morning I think it would be prudent for us to do so, to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. Because this is where we first get introduced to Bethlehem as the city of David. David, at this point in the narrative of 1 Samuel is no one remarkable. In fact, nobody that anybody would name a city after. He is the youngest of the brothers. He is not king at this point in time. Saul is king. But there's a problem in Israel. There's something rotten in the state of Jerusalem. And that is that Saul, the king who has been coronated as the first king of Israel, the king that Israel wanted, the one who stood head and shoulders above everyone else, the one who looked the part of king, had continually violated God's commands, certainly in his heart. But the tipping point came when he offered a sacrifice. He didn't wait for the priest to come. He didn't wait for Samuel to come. He was presumptuous in his worship, which is a wonderful reminder for us that God desires us to worship him on his terms, not to us to worship him in the way that we choose to worship him. But Saul chose to do so. He thought that the prerogatives that were given to him of king allowed him to do anything he wanted. And we see that Samuel had strong words for Saul in verse, or excuse me, in chapter 15. But in chapter 16 of Samuel, or first uh, Samuel, Samuel went from a low point of seeing this man that he coronated, that he anointed to be king. Be having the throne taken from him and understanding that his, his downfall was imminent. 
And then God moved, and God put Samuel in a new direction. And we see this in chapter 16. It says, Then Yahweh said to Samuel, How long will you be grieving over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. For I see among his sons a king for me. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear of it and will kill me. Then Yahweh said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to Yahweh. And you shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will make you know what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one whom I say to you. So Samuel did what Yahweh said and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, Do you come in peace? Apparently, when a priest walked up with a heifer, people got scared. I'll, I'll be cautious when I come bearing stakes to your home. And he says in verse 5, In peace I have come to sacrifice to Yahweh. Set yourselves apart as holy and come with me to the sacrifice. He also set apart Jesse and his sons as holy and invited them to the sacrifice. Now it happened when they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the anointed of Yahweh is before me. Well, why is this? And it says in verse 7, But Yahweh said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks at the heart. Real quick, we, we quote this verse often because this, this illustrates this point that we'll be making here in a moment, that God has a surprising strategy in the way that he works. God has a surprising strategy. Man's strategy is we want to look imposing. We want to look impressive. In fact, kings of the ancient Near East, the immediate context of where the majority of Scripture is set, and other kings of the ancient world, sometimes they were actually built up in stature. Persian kings were given large crowns, were given large suits of armor, were put on high thrones and, and, and carried about on biers, such that they looked bigger and more imposing than everyone else. Pharaohs wore their tall hats with their scary snake on it. Everyone had, this, had this, this imposing image because that communicates something. And that was the problem with Saul. But Samuel was ready to slide right back into that same problem when he saw Eliab. He saw the oldest. But God said, no. I look at what's in the heart. So look at verse 8. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Yahweh has not chosen this one either. Next, Jesse made Shammah passed by, and he said, Yahweh has not chosen this one either. Then Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Samuel said to Jesse, Yahweh has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the young men? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is shepherding the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not turn around until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And Yahweh said, arise. Anoint him, for this is he. Now, another note of humor. I like how Jesse brought the first seven by, and he, he was willing to bring number seven by, but number eight, that was a bridge too far. But that just shows how silly we are as people, doesn't it? Like, I mean, we, we ought to see the silliness in that, that we have a plan, that plan A, B, C, and D work, but Z, that one can't be it. But that is how often we see God working. We see God not picking Saul, not picking the tall one, 
Not picking the one the people picked, but God, by his own good pleasure, picking David, the youngest son of Jesse, a shepherd, the one who is in Bethlehem, not in Jerusalem, not in a civic center, not in a place of prominence, not in a place that people would go to and expect to see. But that's where he goes is Bethlehem. So the city of David emphasizes God's surprising strategy. God has a surprising strategy. And how did he surprise Israel? He surprised Israel back then in 1 Samuel by going to Bethlehem. He surprised Israel that day by going to Bethlehem and picking one of the sons of Jesse. He surprised Israel that day by going to Bethlehem, by picking the son of Jesse, but by not picking one through seven, but by picking number eight. It was a surprise. We can't allow Scripture to become so comfortable that we say, well, of course it was David, because that's where the Messiah would come from. For those people in that day, they saw David and they thought, Saul was taller. Saul was bigger. Saul was better. Saul was the firstborn. David? And we see that play out as we read through the, the, the narrative of 1 Samuel. Everyone laughed. Who's this kid? Who's this guy? Saul seems to meet him and forget who he is. But this is how God works. He chooses the little things. There are two babies in this room right now. They are small. They are cute. They are, 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 you just want to hold them. But that was also God's surprising strategy when he brought his son into the world in this manner. Again, not a tall king like Saul, like one of the surrounding nations, but as a small baby that you want to hold, that you want to cuddle That's the nature of God's surprising work. He does things that are counterintuitive. No one would want to draw near and sing sweet songs about the big, mighty king. No one wants to draw near and sing songs about the one who comes riding in on a horse with flames of fire about him and a sword protruding from his mouth. But that's the exact same one that we sing about at Christmas. God has this surprising strategy of drawing us in, of drawing us near, of bringing us close to the one that we ought to feel close to because he has drawn close to us. He surprised Israel in that way. He surprises the world in this way. The Apostle Paul writes that the gospel is foolishness to those who don't understand. Why would you worship the baby? Why would you worship the dead one on the cross? Well, the fact of the matter is we don't worship the baby. We don't worship the the dead one on the cross. We, We worship the resurrected and ascended, risen Lord who was a baby, who was dead, but what who is alive. All of these things are surprises. They are our plot twists. They are ways that make our hearts and minds understand that we could never figure this out on our own. We could never come up with something amazing like this. We could never think of the fullness of the goodness of the gospel. Bethlehem indicates that. Bethlehem shows that. Bethlehem being the place... It showed Israel that back in, in, in these generations that came before, these centuries before Christ came. And it reminds us of that when, Christ, when David is chosen there and when Christ is born there. We are meant to be surprised by, by this. So I guess my question for you this morning in regards to this is, God has a surprising strategy in how he does things. 
How has God surprised you? How has God surprised you? Even think back of this last, this last week, this last, this last month, this last season of life. How has God surprised you? You thought things were going to go this way, and you had it planned out, and it was going to be perfect. But now you're over here somehow, and you look and you say, look at what God has done. This is the way I would have had it go. And it might be good. It might be okay. There might be virtue and there might be nice things and there might be opportunities for service and ministry and love and family in that direction. But in God's providence, in ways that we don't understand, for his purposes, for his glory, and ultimately for your good, he's put you over here. We don't know why it's happening. We might even tremble at the thought of what that holds. But God has a plan. It was the baby in the manger. It was the Son of God on the cross. It was the apostles watching him ascend. But the good that came from that, each one of those turns, people said, I don't understand the incarnation being a baby. I don't understand why he has to die. I don't understand why he has to leave us. But here we are, 2,000 years later, looking back at those things and saying, praise God that he's ascended, that he has given us his spirit and that he will return. Praise God that he died on the cross to make atonement for our sins. Praise God that he came as an infant so that he could live a perfect life, so that he could make, understand with our weakness and our infirmity. I would have chosen for it to go this way, but God has chosen for it to go that way. The city of David illustrates God's surprising strategy. And he continues to surprise us. He continues to do things in ways that are counter our intuition, but is for our good and for his glory. So that's the first thing. We see the city of David. Joseph went from Galilee, the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. So he goes to Bethlehem, why? Not simply to fulfill prophecy, not because that had some sort of, some sort of uh, poetic justice, because they had this idea that the line of David was going to be special, uh, or they, they knew that the line of David was going to be special, but that's not why, David, why Joseph went there. But he went there because he was of the house and family of David, it says in Luke chapter 2. And we see this borne out uh, in, in Luke chapter 3. So go with me to Luke chapter 3, skip ahead. Luke chapter 3, this is well after the birth narrative. At this point in time, we are past Jesus being born. We are past his presentation at the temple, what John preached on a few weeks ago. We are past Jesus doing the kind of thing that would give every parent in this room fits. He leaves to do something good, but he leaves. We're not going to talk about that when he goes to the temple. And his parents are going for a few days before they realize he's gone, so you really have to wonder about Mary and Joseph. But then we have the baptism of Jesus, and it's at that point in Luke chapter 3 that Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, doing what he intended to do, which was interview eyewitnesses, which is to compile all the information that he had, that's where he gives us the genealogy. And so look at verse 23 of Luke chapter 3. Luke has already said that Joseph was of the family of David. Now, here he circles back. 
He says in verse 23, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Hesli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Matthias, the son of Semin, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Reza, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Eldamam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Matha, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Elikim, the son of Melia, the son of Mena, the son of Matthiah, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse. And we could go all the way back to see how he was also, as we see in verse 38, son of Adam, the son of God. Genealogies are wonderful. They really are. If you are ever thinking that genealogies are dry, that, that the, the, first of all, the joy in learning to pronounce them is worth the price of admission. And here's, let me give you a little pastoral preaching secret. If you say it with confidence, no one's going to bat an eye. You just say it with confidence and you keep going to the next name. But secondly, these names have significance. And what's remarkable is there's significance in the fact that some you're not going to find anywhere. Some pop up and that's it. Which kind of like we were saying before about the idea that God does surprising things in small places. He uses people, he mentions them, and all we know is that he used them in some remarkable way. But some of these other names, Shealtiel, Zerubbabel in verse 27, these were key players in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Things that we, we how do we see this? God was, being, was preserving. There's a, a name that's not even in this list of, of, that was in the book of Ezra that is one of David's descendants, one of Christ's ancestors. But we see how God is preserving, is providentially preserving his people. Not just his people, but also his kingly line. This is the amazing thing, church. We think about how God is persevering, excuse me, preserving his people throughout history. And we know that he's going to maintain a remnant. He's no, we know he's going to have a people. And he has the people of Israel. But sometimes those people are whittled down to tiny little clumps because of the diaspora, them being sent out up to Assyria, up to Babylon, up, you know, all over the world. But within that, God is not only preserving a general random group of Jewish uh, citizens, of ethnically Jewish people, but he's also preserving that line. That line, that, that, that special kingly line that goes back to David, but ultimately that line that goes directly back to the seed of the woman. But this list for the Jewish people for those who are receiving the gospel of Luke, for those who are, are, are wondering why if Messiah has come, why is it that things aren't better? Why are we still under the thumb of the Roman occupation? Why is there still sickness? Why is there still turmoil? Why is there still death? Lists like this illustrate and remind us, reminded them that God has a preserving providence 
that although from our perspective it weaves and it goes deep into valleys of life, and then, as we see here with some of these names, it goes to the top of mountains in triumphant glory. From God's perspective, the 1,000 years is like a day perspective. It's It's a tight, firm, taut line between his promises and their fulfillment. Sometimes we look at the microscopic level and we see those ridges and those valleys and those bumps and we think there's no way we can mount them. There's no way that we can have the endurance to get to the bottom and get back to the top of them. And then we realize that from God's providential understanding and outlaying of our lives, there are valleys, but from his perspective, this grand, majestic, glorified perspective, it is as smooth a surface as can be, and he is going to get us through it. That is true for these names. Names of, these, of, of the descendants of, of, of David that were unfortunately bad kings, were good kings, We're in the exile. We're in this period of time we don't often think about from the post-exilic books of Scripture to the coming of Christ, a time when there was great turmoil and there was war and there was all sorts of things happening. God providentially preserved David's line through all of that. At some points in time, it was one man. And if that one man would have been killed, that would have been the end of that line. But the what-ifs are almost inconsequential, knowing that underneath that one man was not some sort of superhuman strength, was not some sort of arrow-proof vest, but was the providential preservation of God. That ought to remind us of how God's providence is working now. In every situation, there is not one situation that is dark in God's eyes. There is not a corner of this world, there is not a corner of man's heart that God does not see. It is not only Christ coming to Bethlehem because of Joseph and Mary, and and then then the, the, the shepherds, and then the magi, and then all of the circumstances that lead through Christ's ministry, and then the cross. Those are not the only thing that God ordains. Sometimes we have this this wrong perspective that it is only this tight narrative of Scripture that God has his hands on, and everything else is just kind of happening by happenstance. And every once in a while, this grand caravan of the story of God bumps into us. No, church, God is bigger than that. Every inch of the world belongs to God. Every life belongs to God. There's not one errant molecule in the universe that God does not have control of. And there's not anything that is immaterial that God is not sovereign over. His providential preservation is for the line of David, but it is also for you if you are in him. And so once more, we ask, how is God's surprising strategy working in your life? How is his preserving providence working in your life? What has he borne you up through? How has he lifted you up? What was the thing that you thought that you could not endure and he has brought you through? And the more frightening thing, church, is to get to the point where we can anticipate and drill down on this truth now so when the thing, that we, the thing that we don't even know is going to happen tomorrow comes, that we can rest securely and firmly in this truth. 
that God is a God who preserves. God is a God who allows his people to persevere. One of the great doctrines of the faith and something that we ought to talk about more frequently is the doctrine of assurance, the preservation of the saints, that if we are in Christ, then we are secure. One of the things that people come to me, and and, and inevitably they come to the elders and other pastors, and, and they come to and ask about is, how do I know I am saved? Because I am a wretched man. And proper pastoral counsel says, yes, you are, and I am too but it is by God's righteous and holy work. It is by the person and work of his son that we are preserved. It is not happenstance, it is providence. It is not by our strength, it is by his strength. It is not by our right hand or our time in the word or our time in prayer or our attending to preaching or our partaking of the sacrament or anything like that, but it is all by his right hand. Every one of those things he uses to strengthen us and to give us more assurance. But that too, as we mentioned earlier this morning, is a gift of the Holy Spirit that he desires us to have. It is not presumptuous. It is not assuming. It is something that he wants us to have. He wants us to know, as the Apostle Paul wrote, that we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places, present tense. We see that happening as Joseph and Mary. And you can go and look in in the Gospel of Matthew and see Mary's genealogy and, and, and where it comes from. But it's God's preserving providence that allows Joseph and Mary to make this trip to Bethlehem. We don't know a lot about Mary. We don't know a lot about Joseph. But what we do know is that either they were procrastinating or it was simply because of the fact that she was, you know, eight and a half months pregnant that the journey was difficult, but he got them there. He preserved them. He providentially allowed it to happen. And he allowed it to be underlined in a very humble way. They came to the city of David because he was of the family of David. And what we don't see explicitly in this text, but what is implied because of all the prophetic girding that goes into understanding the Gospels, understanding the Gospel of Luke. What would have been anticipated by the ones who knew Christ already because they had received, they already received the Gospel and the Gospel of Luke came after the, the beginning of the church. And what they would have known from understanding Scripture and understanding prophecy was that the one who would arise from the city of David, the one who was of the family of David, was also the heir of David. He was the heir of David. He was the heir to David's throne because this was a promise that they had been waiting for. Turn back with me to 2 Samuel, our last passage of this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 7. So something that I think is important to remember about the life of David, we've been talking much about him this morning. And why is that? Yes, it's because... Christ was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. Yes, it is because Christ is born in the line of David, of the family of David, but also because David is that preeminent human king of Israel. And one of Christ's offices is to be the primary king of not just Israel, but of all people. Christ is the perfect prophet. He is prophetic 
in, in a way that, that Moses was never or Elijah was never prophetic. Because when he speaks, no one has to say, are you speaking for yourself? Or are you speaking for God? Because every word that proceeds from Christ or well, the, as the author of Hebrew writes, that previously, in previous generations, it came from the mouth of prophets. Now it comes directly from the mouth of God. Christ is the preeminent. He is the first prophet. He is also the first priest in a way that Levi or Aaron could never be a priest because they too had to make sacrifice and atonement for their own sins before they went into the Holy of Holies. But as scripture says, Christ himself now enters through the veil of his flesh to make intercession for us. Christ is the perfect priest, Christ is the perfect prophet, and he is also the perfect king. But David was that picture, just as Moses was the picture of a wonderful prophet, and just as, as Aaron is the picture of a wonderful uh, priest, David is that picture of that wonderful human king. But Christ is going to fulfill, he has a threefold office, all of these things, so he is also now heir of David. This would be expected. This is to be expected because of covenants that God made with his people, specifically with David. And we see that here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. Actually, let's go down to verse 12. It says, talking about this, this coming king, he says, He, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up one of your seed after you who will come forth from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will reprove him with the rod of men and strikes from the son of men. But my loving kindness shall not be removed from him, as I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, and your throne shall be established forever." Now, it's true, some of the fulfillment of this was for Solomon. It's true that it's important to, to look at that in verse 14, it says that when he commits iniquity, I will reprove him, something that Christ never did. Yet at the same time, Christ did bear the wrath of God. Christ did bear the punishment that was deserved of man on himself. But the important thing to look at, and the thing the New Testament quotes over and over again as we look at this passage, is that your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. It was a surprising strategy to go to Bethlehem and David. It was a preserving providence that gets David alive, first and foremost. You think about the life of David, you talk about providential hand. God's hand on David, even before his anointing, is remarkable. And yet, through all those generations, the divided monarchy the various uh, exiles, the return to the land, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, God providentially preserving them, but the entire time, his people were waiting for his coming king, for God's coming king, the heir of David. Now it's interesting, how did David receive this promise? You know, the, the, the background of, of this, this covenant that God makes with David is interesting because David is actually, at this point, at the height of his obedience. He has just now come into Jerusalem. The, the, the ark has been brought in. He, he, he builds himself a house, and he's ready to build God a house. But God says, you're a little too, there's too much blood on your hands. You're a man of war. He's going to allow Solomon to do that. But he says, don't think 
that that is taking away anything from who you are, what I've done with you, this kingdom I've set up. David receives this promise of a coming king in humility. David wants to build a temple. God says, you're not going to build a temple. The king is not told no. But when the king understands that he's not number one, when he's a, a far, far, far inferior to number one, he's a vastly lower second to number one, he receives this promise, knowing that there's a coming king. There's one after him who will have a throne that is not temporal, who will have a temple that is not going to be destroyed once and twice, not to be rebuilt again. David receives this promise well. It's interesting. Joseph and Mary received this promise also. Getting back to where we are in Luke, getting back to this, the birth narrative of Jesus, the promise is made to Mary and Joseph is that they're going, to receive, they're going to receive a king, that she is going to bear this king, that she is going to bear the one who will save his people from their sins. As far as a promise as this was to David, it inevitably was just as far from Mary and Joseph. She received the promise. She was blessed. She had faith. She was, was, was righteous because of God, but still... She had to receive this promise in faith that their coming king was going to be the baby that she was going to bear. And inevitably in her mind, as they were making their way to Jerusalem and the contractions were starting and they couldn't find a place for them to, 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 to lay down for the evening, is this the way that the savior of these people is going to be born? We'll talk about the shepherds tonight. Certainly that was a role the shepherds play, was, played was reassuring, uplifting, encouraging Mary by passing on the angel's message. So the last question I'll ask this morning is, how do you, you receive the promise of the coming king? So we talk about the heir of David. There's no throne on earth. We, we certainly understand that in the White House, there's no throne that we can entrust in. We certainly know that there's no, there's no council of world leaders that meets in New York or in Belgium or anywhere else that we can trust in. Hopefully, we understand that it would not be a good thing if somebody today in Jerusalem put a throne up and said, I'm king, everything's okay now. Hopefully, that would make you very discouraged. So when we receive the promise of a coming king, how do we receive it? Because for David, it felt far off. For Mary and Joseph, it felt probably impossible. How do we receive it? Do we think that we're not getting a, wet, a white Christmas this year? It looks like we're getting a wet Christmas in the cold, bleak midwinter when life might not be exactly what we wanted, when our strategy is different than God's strategy, when, when our perspective is different than God's providence, do we understand, appreciate, and embrace that we have a coming king and we only have to look as far back as the manger to understand that it's going to happen in a way that we don't expect and at a time that we don't know, but in a way that is amazing, glorious, and worthy of great celebration. We think about, just church, think about that. 
what we are celebrating at, at Christmas time is the incarnation in, in a way that's much greater than the birth of Christ. But think of the trappings and what we, what we surround the celebration of the incarnation with. It's manger talk. It's, it's, it's the wise men, and it is the shepherds, and it is the journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, the journey from, from the, to the flight to Egypt. All of these things we think about, all of this stuff that was not normal or good on the surface, this is what we surround the trappings of our celebration of the incarnation with. Why? Because it illustrates God's working in a way that we didn't expect, that man didn't expect. Now it happened, it says in verse 6, that while they were there, the days were fulfilled for her to give birth. What we'd studied a few months ago in Genesis, what our children learned about as they start their, started their new curriculum downstairs a few months ago, was that God had promised a deliverer, one to not only free his people from some sort of political bondage, but the bondage from sin. He would crush the head of the serpent. The Apostle Paul says that in the fullness of time, Christ appeared. So yes, Mary hit her nine months. It was time from a biological perspective for this to happen. And God used the simple and mundane biological processes of this world to bring his son into it. But at a much greater level, that now it happened that while they were there, the days were fulfilled for her to give birth. Jesus Christ, the heir of David, of the family of David, in the city of David, was brought in in a surprising way, in a providential way, in a way that could only mean the coming of the one true king. This is what we remember in Advent time. This is what we ultimately celebrate at Christmas time. This wonderful message of God doing something, giving a gift, an unexpected thing, but something that exceeds any anticipation. And so, church, as we move now into taking the supper, my encouragement to you is to anticipate. Because Christ has come, but he's coming again. And, and we ought to, in one, one sense, rejoice and celebrate the manger, the incarnation. In another sense, use that as an encouragement and a basis for the assurance that we have that if he came once, he will come again. And there's a certain joy that comes to the world when we think about that. Because that will be the, 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 the removal of sin, the removal of death, the removal of pain. And for all the goodness that we experience today, especially at seasons like this, it is going to be magnified to a measure that we cannot even imagine. The supper gives us that opportunity. The supper gives us that, that moment of having true fellowship with Christ for a moment as we anticipate what that true fellowship with Christ for all eternity will be. That is what we partake of at the supper. It is the real presence of Christ, not in the, in the elements themselves, but by faith as we come to this table, as worthy partakers, not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done and given us.
It is a great, great gift. The supper itself is a great, great gift that he's, been given, he's given to us. And so come and receive it with joy. Come and receive it with gladness. Come and receive it as he has received us because of his good pleasure for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we continue to remember, but we also continue to worship. We pray that our remembrance is so closely tied to worship that as we see signs and symbols of this season, that it stirs our heart to magnify your name and glorify who you are. We thank you that you sent your son in the way that you did. And although that his, his second coming is going to be dramatic in all of the ways that Hollywood would seek to create on the screen, that his first coming was just as dramatic because it came in a way we didn't expect. It came in a way that illustrated that you do things in a surprising way based on our standards, that you preserve and that your providence runs through all of history and that your promise of a coming king came to fruition. So Lord, as we are about to take the supper, something given to us, given to your church, in fact, given to us in a more explicit and a more real and a more profound way than any Christmas celebration has been, that this is a moment that we can truly appreciate what has happened, what is happening, and what is yet to come. We thank you for the, all of these things. In the name of your Son, amen.